Hello, this is Terry Vandermark recording his first ever podcast. Um, I'm thinking of titling this series of podcasts 1001 Abyssinian Nights. Um, probably a working title, doesn't sound right. Um, it's uh, for those interested in uh, listening to it's It's a uh, fantasy um, story. Um, a series of fantasy stories. It's a prequel to my books that are available on Amazon Kindle um, under the name Terry Vandermark Jr. Uh, search there for um, several titles of the Dream, Dream Sphere Saga series. Um, uh, I also want to give a shout out to my fellow co workers, uh, Jen and Ailey. Um, and uh, listen to her po their podcast, um, Michigan and Other Mayhem. Oh, they're hilarious. It's really funny. Um, so I'll give you about 30 minutes of uh, this story. Um, come back if you'd like to hear more. Here it begins. Title, The Varied Tongues of God by Terry L. Vandermark Jr., um, a.k.a. Thaddeus Quasar. Prince Khalid was mesmerized by the brilliant greens and yellows and reds swimming, dancing like stars in the darkest depths of the cave. A luminescent sun was blazing, casually inviting him before being completely extinguished. He was here to slay a dragon, a malevolent beast that exchanged beautiful princesses only for the cor correct answers to riddles was here. He was told by Lady Gawa that the solution to his riddle was in truth a trap, that the one who solved the riddle would determine that to be the case. The true riddle, once read in the reflection of his shield, brought him here. A breeze from the dark recesses of the cave caused Prince Khalid's torch to flutter, his heart to tremble. The creature's grasp was as untelling as the riddle, there was the subtle squeeze. His bronze armor buckled, constricting and pinching him. The prince found that to be the most frightening aspect of this creature. Why was he not cruel? What have we here? croaked a frightful voice. The flame of the prince's torch played off the silver and brass scales that adorned his face. The dragon silently studied the writhing Khalid. The man wondered how much prey found the terror in the in the reflection. Well, it looks like you have solved my riddle. All those men who preceded you, not so smart apparently. You may take Lady Daphne with you, it is true, but I have another riddle you must solve. Solve this riddle, and you may leave here, not only with the Lady Daphne, but also with as much treasure I have here as you can carry. So what do you say? Prince Khalid looked down. From his vantage point, he could see the beautiful, charismatic Lady Daphne, a blooming flower of silk petals and gold trim. She was cackling, which unnerved the prince. The creature's tail snapped like a whip. The dragon had grown tired of her. Prince Khalid turned from the taunting damsel back at the dragon. Well, he queried, the beast, what do you decide? 
you take up my, my challenge? Prince Khalid looked at the splendid armor the animal bore, overlapping scales of bronze and silver, catching the flame just right. There's no way his blade can do any damage to him. He had another weapon. Prince Khalid allowed his sword to fall to the cave floor. He was the jarring sound of his sword hitting the floor would deafen the princess's obnoxious guffawing. How do you intend to defeat me? The dragon's mouth curled into a devious grin. The plate there is shifting and popping. I have just the thing. I was told to use it against you, to successfully take Princess Daphne from your clutches. Words would fight this battle, not brawn. Prince Khalid did not think he was the right warrior for this fight. The dragon cracked like thunder. I should respect anything written by persons of the North Wood. Go on, show me this frightful bit of craft. Prince Khalid wrestled with it, the leather satchel wedged beneath his crumpled armor. He broke the seal, then unraveled the scroll. He thrust the document in the dragon's face. The creature's tongue tickled a plush pillow at the rear of his mouth. An isolated flame marched down his tongue and peered out at the manuscript. The flame lunged for the maw of the throat, becoming a silver wisp of smoke. He dropped the prince, who landed hard within feet of the reverent woman. It were as though comets were crashing. No one should live after seeing the terror in a dragon, the heart bursting, the agonizing voice touching something innate in whoever should experience it. Take her away from me. Do so before I act on my wrath and slay the two of you. Once the dragon was gone, Prince Khalid drifted over to Princess Daphne. He was repulsed by her garish looks, with blue eye shadow and white paste smeared across her face. The flower was a stage prop. Prince Khalid picked up the scroll, a scrap of discarded flesh, and read the text. Princess Daphne continued to, to guffaw. Well, you are a brave man, that's for sure. I won't even read what's inside there. So, how is the truth treating you, hon? Prince Khalid swooned. He fell to his knees, then reached for his sword. Princess Daphne knelt, her fat hands on her knees. She kicked the sword free from the man's grasp. What do you intend to do, hon? Princess Daphne announced herself as a brass band throughout the chamber. The darkness was further disheartening. What do you intend to do? You can't prevent the future, especially now that you know it. Prince Khalid took his blade, then worked to pry open his stubborn shell. As the darkness took him to her bosom, Princess Daphne scolded him. How am I supposed to make my way back to my family? Her white mask was seared in his vision. Prince Khalid swore upon returning to life that he would take it upon himself to dismantle every structure and scatter every person in the North Wood, as it was the source of every dangerous truth in the Abyssin. Parvin found the path leading to the elven sanctuary by a broken blade of grass. A single blade swept to the west. As brazen as any sign, elves rarely did something so deliberate. That in itself should have kept Parvin away. The elf identified the entrance almost immediately. I did not think I would find myself coming here. 
The warden, concealed as a jabbering waterfall, tittered. Come inside and dare to speak. This is a refuge for the most dangerous of thoughts. Say what you will here, as select ideals are hunted and killed outside this place. The warden opened a curtain of rain. Once in the hovel, the pair approached the wooden door concealed by charms, something Parvin found himself found curious and troubling. Parvin could see the unforgiving scowl set fixed, peering through the intertwined ivy. This was a crypt, an insult, and stain on any elf. The stink of death did well to hide the place. As the door opened, it groaned, uttering complicity among elves and men. The door closed behind them with an assuring boom. Parvin entered a circular chamber. Faint torchlight revealed the lip of ch chiseled stone, bordering a round hole in the crater in the center. Fear, which was a barking dog for all elves, announced itself. The elf took care not to approach the pit. My name is Pota, said the warden, merely gripping the fl elf's flimsy sleeve and guiding his hand along the fabric to the soiled cuff. Pota came in close. He looked intensely into the fellow elf's eye. You were brought here, knowing one thing, so that upon leaving, you know that to be false. Parvin withdrew from Pota, trembling. The elf identified with the burden of the apple on the branch. He hoped he could be rescued before tumbling and falling. Tell me why you are here, directed Pota. Parvin confessed, I came here looking for God. I felt him withdraw. The slightest tug and the wound filled me with despair. Have I come to the wrong place? Pota's eyes shimmered like coins as he delicately traced the seam of Parvin's sleeve. You came here believing one thing and knowing less. You will leave here knowing fully and fearing most of all. Come, instructed Pota. He swept in behind the addled Parvin and with a whoosh, gently escorted him across the cobblestone floor, their bricks clapping under their footfalls. Parvin found his anxiety elevating. Ultimately, they faced a wall. Both the elf mistook for beetles were eyes peering back at him. Here we are. We are doing God's work here. God will unmistakably be revealed to you behind this panel. Are you sure you want to enter? Parvin could not contain his stubborn anxiety. It crackled at his fingertips, and it stopped. It crackled at his fingertips and atop his head. Parvin stepped into Poda, and deliberately clung to him. The only thing of substance in this place of phantoms. If this was a place housing dangerous thoughts, then the death of God most certainly would be here. He prompted him, "I need to be see that God always was and always will be." Poda answered, "Certainly." A nimble finger touched a red brick, and the panel passage exhaled a stale, dusty breath. Poda took Parvin's hand and gently guided him down a twisted spine of stairs. The elf could determine the faint, reaching presence of light, as well as the soft flutter of breaths of several persons. Here we are, Parvin, Poda announced. The world is as it must be. 
Inside, the uncertain light of the chamber was as many as fifty elves, elves that caused Parvin to retch, elves covered in shit and vomit, elves Parvin knew who had taken a vow to avoid the networking common to all elves that had distinguished them. Each of these filthy elves were seated three to a table. There were candelabras lazily shedding wax at each table, soft aromatic, mounds expanding, claiming the scarred table surface, each elf apparently challenging and refuting himself with the black blood of his quill, found himself hunting hostilely the edge of the paper, containing emotion and curbing thought by wrangling with words. Why, what is this that is going on? asked Parvin. His anxiety had returned. Potus scowled. Would you rather say God is alive or dead? I want to believe that God is real. Is God real? Can I find him here? Poda cupped his hand under Parvin's elbow. If elves don't hide from themselves, for their fear and shame and contempt, they're always hiding from themselves. But I suppose that's what gods mean to us. Especially lonely, a god unto himself, one elf allowed a shout. The elf to the left of him, and the elf to the right, and twinkle in each one's eye, withdrew like dangerous scorpions. They stood beside their deskmate, hissing, having difficulty placing him. The shouting elf spoke once again. He jumped up from his seat and threw his table over. His two companions, clinging to the past as desperately as if it were a battle flag, rescued the candelabra. They pursued their pens and paper. It looked to Parvin. They feared vanishing without them. Another shout, and the disruptive elf unfurled into a white mist that the ceiling greedily consumed. What has happened? asked Parvin. Has he returned to the first forest? But Parvin knew there was no returning to the idyllic first forest for the elves seated in this room. They were bound to the Abyssine. This was their one and only home. The past was their future. The only reason for being, each one would ultimately write themselves out of existence, like this outspoken elf. Parvin wrenched himself violently from oblivion, writhing like a fetus over a bed of coals. Had the stroke of a pen made him, he could not remember his name, how to communicate with his brethren, how to return to the first forest, or even why he had come here. Had he materialized here on a whim? Dear God, he had to leave this place. All he knew was he had to go to the humans. The humans that inexplicably loved and cherished him. The humans that had their own name on it for him. The name he adored more than one of his brethren gave him. Yes, humans, humans despite their penchant for cruelty. He could find God among them even though unfathomable death and ignorance clung to each like a ball and chain. Poto was chirping lively like a bird, hunting, needing fear like swarming persistent bugs. Parvin could barely bring himself to listen. The elves here are writing what history is. Soon there will be what was the great awakening, given a new name and a new meaning, an awareness of the world and of those who live in it. We will know a new god. We will be a part of him. 
who he is, his birth and action, his demonstration, no longer slaves unto ourselves. Parvin scrambled toward the exit. The door taunted him. It rippled at the touch. He spun and wobbled. He denied it. He refused it. The brass knob swam in his hand. He opened it twice, then once more. Was it not his own birth? Scuttling along like a lungfish? Poda's voice cut him. Where will you go? God has plans for you. He climbed the rippling stairs that sang like piano keys that ended abruptly. He jumped. He died. He burned. He desperately became something he couldn't be to transform his prison long enough to escape it. Parvin was outside the cave before he knew it. Would he forget everything? His name, the people he loved, the Abbasine, everything? He tumbled down a slope of flesh grass, green grass, the grass's many hands swirling and seeking to comfort him. He came across a familiar tree. He surveyed the tree from when it was a tender sapling to its decades of sturdy life, the crippling blow made by a lightning bolt, and life enduring tenaciously within ever since. Parvin knew he would not be able to leave this place ever again. Parvin reached inside his cloak, cloak's pocket. He retrieved a sealed scroll, deposited there by Poda, someone else, at a time yet to be determined. Parvin scrutinized the scroll, the dull-witted venomous beast, lurking, hunting, waiting. Should he open it? Was this his place? If he opened it, his questions would be answered. Or would they? The elf returned the scroll to his pocket. Parvin took one step, north and west. Immediately he shuddered. He was among the elves responsible for the new awakening. He may have been ignorant before, but no longer. He was complicit with Poda and the elves inside the cave. For now he had brought a new god into play, a faceless alien god, one without compassion. The elf had to recruit the humans. Parvin would go to the villages of the north wood, to Golden Bridal, to the powerful and talented magic builders there, to Peck Merle, and Mira, whom he had befriended first, to Gelwa, to Mayor Taos, Taurus, to the humans that had forever changed what he understood people to be. He picked himself up. He would have to run as fast as his feet could carry him. He would have to run faster, faster than the past, before it could overtake him and end his mission and squelch his hope. The village of Errant Compass was sleeping. A remarkable, indefatigable beast, the hide of bone and gemstones. Few people slept so soundly in the Abyssine. A solitary figure walked the moonlit grounds of the village. A crooked little man, depending on a cane, slowly making his way from one homestead to the next. So many happy, wondrous faces displayed on every building, inspiring laughter, offering hope. Errant Compass was as frightful and beautiful a place as any village in the North Wood. Kirchall, the aged, bent figure, circled every house on his uncertain legs. Some unspoken ritual that he engaged in, disarming every charm. The old wobbling man approached the last house. The owner's name was Temid, and he served in the capacity of mayor for this village. Kirchall 
heard someone breathing just on the opposite side of the door. He peered within, past the armor's gr grill, past the paper mache mask. He caught the mayor's eye. Did the mayor try to stop what Kirchhoff intended for the village? The broken little man looked at the palm of his hand, at the compass with the spinning needle, spinning, jerking, never stopping. He closed his fingers over the compass, brought the instrument to his parched, pierced lips, and uttered softly some enchantment. Immediately a veil dropped from all around the village. The air was crisper, the view of the stars sharper. Kirchhoff, life tethered to him like a growling, observant snow leopard, returned to the cover of the kneeling paternal forest. He made the effort to catch the eye of every goblin adjacent to the bonfire. He reached for the moon. There came cackling and shouts and snorts and barks. Responding to the silent command, the creatures, their bulbous eyes flickering bronze in the firelight, their knotted foreheads bristling with tumors, each pried loose an oil-soaked torch and jabbed at the bonfire and delighted as each caught fire. Within minutes, as many as twenty-plus goblins, each held an indiscriminate, ever-hungry flame. The frenzied monsters pounced, suckling the heat igniting the unblemished, defiant structure. There came screams, there came shouts and prayers, but the flames had, in, had no ears. They were ignorant of who they hurt. They only knew the primal need to feed. The roof tiles popped and shattered, the walls dissolved like soap. Inside, those resembling white worms watched as the flames sought to take them. The gold marrow in their limbs could not be tainted with the heat. The stain of humanity charred and scourged and swept away as dawn boldly and unselfishly claimed the eastern horizon. The last of the buildings were succumbing to the flames. Kershaw's job was done. The one mother who called Errant Compass home and who represented God and served as a meeting between him and the people who adored God, and sought to please him, was dead. Let the goblins have the rest. Suddenly a specter appeared to the north, just beyond the greedy discretion of the flames. Three clown boys were revealed, their torsos and faces white with, with chalk dust, their eyes black with grease paint. Kirchhoff watched as the three scrambled up the embankment and ran toward a nearby house, clinging to their hope as if it was a mother's tit. There was a test of wills as the boys fought to subdue the bucking beast. The flames continued the drunkard's advance, the drunkard's dance, tripping and stumbling and undoing. The tallest lean boy entered a house. His white hand grabbed a reaching tendril of flame and squelched it. It worked its way into the furnace and closed around the silver heart. The boy extracted a golden kernel, a fearless teen girl. Once free from the flames, the three boys knelt before the teen girl and regarded her reverently and hostily. Kirchhoff sensed something remarkable in the boys. He feared he was one of them. 
even though they remained masked. He promised the goblins in their ugly language a feast, but the frights regarded the boys, wanting to lie down with a prickly, perturbing fear before indulging in the grief this stone soup would offer their bellies. Kirchhoff hesitated, then entered the dark wood and withdrew. What is this? enjoined the girl named Celeste. She was a beautiful 19-year-old with ruddy cheeks and cascading amber locks. What has become of my village? The girl saw the beast in the three painted boys. She witnessed guarded victory, something that need be respected. Victory knew not to look in a teen's eye. I know you. Three boys from the village of Pissfield Canteen. Am I right? Am I not? The three boys said nothing, only grunted. Pigs rooting for truffles. The concealing fabric these extended to the eyes as well. Burning coals or dull gems, but not eyes. There was nothing humane, no matter how deeply one dug or how much one refused to see. Yes, the village of Pissfield Canteen, filled with cowards and with fools. I have no respect for the people of your village. None. How is it you have come here? Why does my village burn? And who are these goblins here? Do you come here all to burn down my home and kill all the people of Errant Compass? If it need be, I was my own, it was my own action. She had been told that the destruction of Errant Compass had to be accomplished. She felt she had failed herself, if not the one mother. The one mother, did she survive? The three clown boys said nothing. The first two became indistinguishable from the standing guarded silent trees. They shoved one another, provoked one another. The last boy flipped an enthusiastic wave and smiled an enigmatic smile, and sprang over the crumbly embankment like a toad, and casually withdrew from the village like the smoke carried by the, by the breeze. Celeste watched as the hazy blood-red sun emerged past the Lukak peaks. The fires waned, her compassion yearned for expression. She wondered if love ever prevailed here. There was no alleviating this pain. She should not be here, but she had to stay. It was the judgment of the people of the Northwood, and it was it not. She had to make sure the last person of Aaron Compass died. The goblins, having been spooked by the three boys, returned biting and stabbing and crippling. They kept a wary bloodshot eye on the subdued child, but the promise of a real provoked, uh, but the promise of a meal provoked action. First came one hoot, a solitary sound made to elicit some kind of response from the remaining human. Once that was greeted with silence and inaction, there came more hoots and crashes in the bush. The teen girl harnessed a tempest, grumbling and flashing with light in the palm of her hand to ward off the encroaching beasts. It required violence to create uncommon fortitude to make use of. The creatures called down curses upon the child from the dull-witted gods, but they had to concede their gods were no match for a teen from the Northwood. 
Each villager marshaled powers, enough to kill each one of these goblins, and that most cruelly, even if this child was vulnerable, with what with her doubts and misery. But they looked to pounce as if on a rudderless listing boat. It was midday when Celeste stumbled upon the tracks of as many as six horses. The evidence jarred her heart. They spoke like a relief on a tomb's wall. Six skilled horses, capable of traversing difficult terrain, coming out of smoldering errant compass and heading northeast in the direction of the foothills of the Lukaks. In the midst of the hoofprints, Celeste found an ivy crown. Hope overtook her. She was a fish, free from an icy pond, the thorny shore empty of air. Her eyes found the inhospitable world full of potential, if full of harm. Could she prevail here? In tomorrow? There is only one person fit to wear this crown. She must be alive. A gentle hand grazed her back. Celeste, my dearest bride. Celeste, more afraid of this person than of those who need burn down her village. Slap the man, slapped the man, then ran. Stop, my dearest. Celeste ran to the edge of the village. If she ventured alone into the forest, she was sure she would become a wild thing, no longer a human. Insanity was there, and sun-dappled wrath. She dared look the man in the eye. Zohar. Zohar approached his bride cautiously, as if he were a sprite, as if she were a sprite cat. She refused to look him in the eye, but she extended a hand to him. He did not hesitate, but took it, and placed the dull blade on his heart. Zohar could not fully take in the destruction of Celeste Village. What happened here? You telling me you don't know? The woman snarled. You telling me Golden Bridal is not behind this? Shh, the teen stroked his wife's chin. You know I don't know anything. It's the only reason why you chose to date me in the first place. The two chuckled spontaneously. Celeste threw aside her grief and hugged Zohar tightly, desperately. Someone has taken the one mother. We have to rescue her. Who was, who has her? Not exactly clear. All I know is she's alive. I can feel her. She conveyed softly. The boy peered into the shadows of the wood. Celeste sensed he was trying to undo its charm. The woods were always hostile, especially for the villagers. Do you suppose there's a reason she's not alive? Do you suppose there's a reason she's still alive? Do you suppose she knows something? Celeste growled angrily. All this noise about secrets, the girl snorted. If ever I am in charge, a mayor of some village, I'll destroy each and every scroll there. Who needs this grief, huh? Zohar took Celeste's hand and nuzzled it. We go to rescue the old, the, the one mother. Celeste felt like a flame, like a spring of water, uncontained, as if she could not make sense of her world as if she were perpetually chasing love. Celeste entered the forest, thick with underbrush. It were as though the forest had thrown up its own defenses. 
Zohar followed behind, though with difficulty. He tried to soften the mood. Why must there be secrets? There, your village, will be the two of us, husband and wife. And love? That certainly won't be it. no secret. Celeste had to find the one mother and do her best to rescue her. Celeste acted fast. She had to, no telling what her captors had in store for her. And that's uh, the end of the first broadcast. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, I intend to add another portion next week, the week of um, August, the first part of August uh, um, 2019. Thanks again. Bye.